This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Andrew Oxford. It could feel like democracy itself is at stake in state houses around the country this year as some states push to roll back voting rights and election deniers work to overturn election results. So today we're talking about how state lawmakers could shore up or reshape democracy in New Mexico. Lawmakers and advocates have suggested open primaries, easing access to mail-in ballots, and expanding rules to allow more people to vote. We'll talk through these ideas this hour, and we want to hear from you. How would you like to see the voting process change in our state? How should New Mexico protect the right to vote or better protect election officials who are facing increasing threats of violence? Email us letstalk at kunm.org. Tweet to us at hashtag letstalknm or call us 505-277-5866. That's 505-277-5866. We're joined by Senator Katie Duhigg, a Democrat from Albuquerque and chair of the Senate Rules Committee. She's co-sponsoring House Bill 4, perhaps the most high-profile election legislation of this session. We're also joined by Mario Jimenez, executive director of Common Cause New Mexico, which is backing HB 4 as well. The bill would allow New Mexicans to sign up to get ballots for every election via mail. It would create a system for automatic voter registration. It would also turn Election Day into a school holiday and restore the voting rights of people convicted of felonies when they leave prison. It's It's got the backing of a long list of advocacy groups from the League of Women Voters of New Mexico to the Sentencing Project. Senator Duhigg, what's the biggest way this bill might change how New Mexicans vote? Hey, good morning, Andrew. Um, you know, I think I think one of the the biggest ways that this is going to impact folks. Um, really, I, I'm going to pick two because um, there's there's a whole bunch, but I'll, I'll narrow it down to my top two. Um, the first is what you mentioned a, a, a voluntary permanent absentee um, system, where if you prefer to vote by mail, you can sign up to vote by mail once. And then you're automatically going to get your ballot in the mail every time it's, it's time for you to vote, rather than having to reapply each year. Uh, because the, now we, we really do have elections every year. Uh, we have both the local elections and the, the odd number years and, and the elections that I think folks are, are a little bit more used to participating in, the um, general elections and midterm elections and and even numbered years. So that permanent absentee list is one. Um, the other one that I think is really going to have a big impact in, on New Mexico is secure automatic voter registration, where when folks are going to the MVD and they're getting their driver's license, they'll automatically be registered to vote. Um, and then if they want to opt out of that, if they say, no, I don't want to be registered after all, they'll have the opportunity to, to do that. Um, when they get uh, a postcard in the mail from their county clerk. But doing that secure automatic voter registration is going to bring in a whole lot of folks who are eligible to vote, but unregistered here in New Mexico, and bring them into our democratic process from the start so that there's no barriers to them participating. And they're also getting uh, contacts and information from campaigns as they're going, because now campaigns know to reach out to them. I want to unpack some of these provisions here in just a second. Uh, but you know, a similar voting rights bill did not pass during last year's session. And I'm curious, Mario, what's different at the Roundhouse this year that makes you confident or, or perhaps at least hopeful that this bill will actually become law? Is this the same proposal we, we saw last year? It is not verbatim the, the same proposal, but it's a very similar proposal. You know, this year, the Roundhouse, we're all back. We're all running normally. You know, and and I think one of the big things that we see different this year in comparison to, to years past as this legislation has been brought forward is it's been debated. It's been discussed. It's been on the on, on, on the spotlight. And so we have a lot more people who are understanding of what this bill includes. It includes voter access. It, you know, really what this is doing is the, the bill in whole in its entirety is we're looking at enfranchising voters. New Mexico already has great laws on the books surrounding elections, and we have great democracy forward thinking in passing legislation in New Mexico. And we're just continuing along those lines of ensuring that all communities across the state and all New Mexicans across the state are afforded the right to vote. And, and that's precisely what this bill is going to do. And I think we have a lot more understanding, which is why you see the speaker backing the bill itself. It's a good bill. 
and everyone should support it. We should get behind it because by getting behind the bill, we're getting behind the Mexicans. Senator, I want to circle back to one of the provisions you talked about that I think might be one that that a lot of voters notice if this becomes law, which is that permanent absentee voting list. Do I understand right that this would work by voters checking a box on their registration card that basically says you send them ballots for every election? Is that how this would work? And and what do you think would be the impact on uh, voter participation and and voting by mail if we had that kind of system? Yeah, so I think what, one of the ways you're going to be able to apply is, yeah, let's let's say you went, you came to New Mexico, you went to the MVD, you got a license, uh, you're automatically registered to vote. Then you get that that postcard in the mail saying, do you want to pick a party? Do you want to opt out? And one of those options is, do you want to sign up to, to get a mail ballot for every election? That'll be one of the ways folks can, can do it. Um, I think there will also be, for folks who, who are already registered, um, I, I believe there's going to be a, an application on the Secretary of State's website where, where they can, can sign up there as well. Um, but it's definitely what, what we've seen in other states that have uh, expanded and even gone to full uh, mail-in voting is that voter participation really increases. The easier we make it for folks to vote, the more we give them the opportunity to be thoughtful about their voting by having that being able to, to sit down around the kitchen table while the, to fill out their ballots, take the time to, to look candidates up that they might not be familiar with, the more accessible we make all of that, the more people vote and the more they, they participate. And so I think, now I will say this, I don't think New Mexico will ever be a 100% mail-in ballot state, quite frankly, just because our mail service isn't such that that we can completely abandon having some in-person voting. We should always, even though I am a big fan of mail-in voting and the, the expanded access to democracy that it brings, we should still always give folks um, the option to vote in person as well, because for some people that, that's going to be the best option for them. But for others for whom mail-in voting is, is the best option, this is a great uh, solution. And it also... What we see in a lot of mail-in voting states is that people get the ballots mailed to them, but then they prefer to drop them off when they're returning them. Lots of people mail them back, but a whole lot of people drop them off. So the more we can expand the use of uh, monitored, secured containers, some people call them drop boxes in New Mexico as well, that will really help build up the infrastructure we need to expand mail-in voting as much as possible in New Mexico. That sort of system, like you were talking about, has been implemented in other states, you know, allowing voters to sign up to always get a ballot by mail rather than requiring they ask one for each election. One only has to look at Arizona for an example of that. But since 2020, some Republicans in Arizona, where they didn't do so well, have criticized that system because they say it's vulnerable to fraud. A voter might move and not might not update their address, for example, and a ballot is mailed to that old address. Uh, Senator, what do you say to those concerns that this means that election officials might be working off a list of voters that's you know, not entirely up-to-date or accurate when they're mailing out ballots. So we already have uh, in our election laws a whole lot of checks and balances that are keeping an eye on things like mail coming back, mail being, uh, you know, sent back as undeliverable. Um, we're also a member of ERIC. Mario might be, remember what ERIC stands for. I can't remember it right now. But what ERIC does is, is it is essentially a, a compact among a number of states, especially the ones surrounding New Mexico, uh, that helps keep our voter rolls clean. So we already have in place what we need to make sure that this is a, a secure way to vote. The, the irony of Republicans who these days are, are not liking absentee and mail-in voting is kind of funny because historically, uh, the GOP has used absentee voting far more and far more successfully than, than the Democratic Party has. Um, so <laughs> up until a couple of years ago, it was really a boon to them. Um, then when it started, I think, being expanded uh, on really fundamental levels, like, like we're, we see in places like, you know, like you said, Arizona or, or Colorado, and just overall citizen participation shot up because of that, 
um, then then they started not liking it quite so much. Yeah, but, like said but was... as far as the security, I have no concerns about that here in New Mexico, where we already have excellent laws in place to to address those concerns. Well, I want to talk about voter registration too. Uh, you know, right now, New Mexico has a system where you are asked if you want to register to vote when you get a driver's license. This law would build on that system. Senator, how would that work? So you're right. So now when you go to the MVD, at the end of your transaction, we have what's called an opt-in system where you can, they say, do you want to register to vote? It's about My understanding is about 79% of people say no because they want to get out of there. <laughs> no one wants to hang out in the MVD any longer than they have to. Um, so while, while that was, uh, I think, a, a really good idea and a really good start to expanding voter registration, it's one that we're seeing just does, is not really a, a convenience to the voter. So with this system, since it's opt-out, the registration takes place automatically. And then, they, and then if they don't want to be registered, they will have every opportunity to, to make sure that they are not. And, and they won't ever be recorded as having been registered if they say they don't want to. But this, makes, this respects voters' time, I think, in a fundamental way, uh, while also making it as easy as possible to, to engage in our democratic process. Criminal justice reform groups have rallied around House Bill 4 because this bill would impact the rights of people who've been convicted of felonies. Right now, once you're convicted of a felony, your registration is suspended in New Mexico and you can't register to vote again until you've completed all the conditions of probation and parole. Mario, how would this bill change that? You know, it's going to change it in, in one word, and that word is simplify. What this is going to do is it's going to simplify the registration process. A process, not only for those uh, uh, who are formerly incarcerated, but it's going to simplify the process for our county clerks and for our corrections department. Uh, the status quo does have a ton of hoops for for everyone to jump through. The county clerks have to verify, you know, that that uh, the the conditions have been completed, and in some cases the corrections department isn't talking to the county clerk's office. So the clerk's office may show that it has not been completed. However, the corrections department has documentation showing that it has been completed and it's just not being properly routed through the proper channels to ensure that the voter themselves can in fact register to vote. And so very similar to, to what the Senator was discussing with the NBD, you know, if this is really just going to remove another hoop for individuals to vote and eliminate the confusion. It's very simple. It's very basic. If I am not incarcerated, I'm eligible to vote. That simple. So it's going to simplify the process for New Mexicans who are already afforded the right to vote upon completing uh, uh, their, 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 their probation or parole. But in this case, we're going to eliminate the probation thing and just only if you're incarcerated uh, uh, for those conviction for a felony conviction, you're not you're not permitted to vote. But once you're released, you're absolutely eligible to vote. But in addition to that, another one of the things that this bill does, which is wonderful, is upon release, you'll be offered that right to vote, to register to vote right then and there. Just as you go through to obtain uh, an ID, you can also participate in registering to vote. So it's really going to look at simplifying the process, make the process much easier for our election administrators, but ultimately it's going to make the process easier for New Mexicans who should already be allowed to register to vote in an easy, simple process, just like everyone else. So, again, what this is going to do, it's going to simplify things uh, for those who are formerly incarcerated and make the process much easier. Well, this is Let's Talk New Mexico from KUNM, and we've been talking about House Bill 4 with Senator Katie Duhigg, Democrat of Albuquerque, and Mario Jimenez, Executive Director of Common Cause New Mexico. House Bill 4 gets its first hearing tomorrow morning in the House Government, Elections, and Indian Affairs Committee. And we'll be right back after this break, and we want you to join the conversation. We'll be talking ahead about opening up New Mexico's primary elections and making it in- easier for independent voters to participate. We'll be talking more, too, about House Bill 4. What do you think? Email us let's talk at KUNM.org, tweet the hashtag let's talk in M, or give us a call and let's talk New Mexico 505 277 5866. That's 505 277 5866. We'll be right back. This is KUNM.
Support comes from the School for Advanced Research, presenting a conversation on drug addiction in New Mexico's Española Valley and Mexico City, February 9th at 7 p.m. at the New Mexico History Museum. Registration at sarsf.info slash capital F9. It's time to elect four people to the KUNM Radio Board, and you're invited to nominate yourself. We welcome people from all walks of life, and a broad array of points of view are encouraged. Nominations must be in by 5 p.m. February 15th. Email to KUNMelect at unm.edu or mail to University Secretary, Scholes Hall, UNM 87131. Nominations may not be hand-delivered. For complete info on the KUNM Radio Board elections, call 505-277-4664 or visit KUNM.org in the About tab. Our gratitude to all KUNM members for providing their support to ensure that news, as well as friendly companionship and much-needed music and storytelling, is available for all. The biggest share of KUNM's funding comes from you. Thank you. From KUNM, this is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Andrew Oxford, and this week we're talking about how the legislature could change how we vote and who can vote. And we want to hear from you. How could legislators make voting easier or more convenient for you? Maybe you've seen the other side of the process as a poll worker. What did you learn? And what would you like your fellow voters to know about the work that goes into running an election? Give us a call and let's talk. 505-277-5866. That's 505-277-5866. Senator Duhigg, I wanted to come back to you because we've been talking about House Bill 4. This would make a number of changes to New Mexico's election system. And and one of them is it would make uh, Election Day a school holiday, not necessarily a holiday for everyone, but for school students. Why a school holiday? Well, the reason it's a school holiday is because a lot of the voting locations that county clerks use are schools. Um, And so it makes just the, the, the coordination of setting up Election Day a lot easier when schools are not both having to, to host the county clerks to provide voting um, and worry about the, the school day and students at the same time. So it, it's really a, an election administration simplification. You know, this bill would make changes to uh, mail-in voting as well, like we were talking about with a, a permanent absentee voter list. It sounds like this bill isn't just about getting more people to vote by mail or getting more people to vote in person. Mario, it, it's kind of an all-of-the-above approach. Is that what I'm gathering? Yes, sir, it is. It, it is an all-of-the-above approach. Um, you know, again, it goes back to ensuring that we are, we are providing the protections needed for, for everyone to vote. Absolutely. One big difference between this year's legislation and the major voting rights package that we saw last year is that this bill would not lower the voting age for local elections. I know last year's bill had a provision that would have allowed 16-year-olds to vote in some local elections. Uh, Senator Duhigg, why, why drop that provision? Why don't we see that back this year? You know, before I answer that, I'll, I'll say, in general, the more we can we can establish a habit of voting in, in our youth, the better. Uh, I used to be the, the city clerk at the city of Albuquerque, and I remember I was looking through old stats on elections there one day, and I consistently saw that there were more people over 90 who were voting in elections than under 30. And that is a, that's scary. I, I think there's a whole generation of folks uh, coming up who have not grown up with the habit of voting, um, and that's deeply disturbing. Uh, and so I think that's, that's one of the pro- – uh, I think that's why the, it was initially offered as a, a potential solution to have 16-, 17-year-olds vote in some local elections to, to, to get, folks, get kids engaged as early as possible in, in our dem- democratic process. That said – I just don't think there's the votes to pass it. Um, and so that's why it wasn't in this bill. I, I understand it has been filed as a separate bill. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that bill. But I'll also mention that there's another bill, um, Senate Bill 180, that makes a lot of technical cleanups to our election code. And in that bill, we make it so that those 17, 16 and 17-year-olds, if they're pre-registered to vote, they can work as poll workers. So we're still making making what any effort we can to to get them involved in this process and involved early on to to create that lifelong habit of voting. 
This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We've been talking to Senator Katie Duhigg, a Democrat from Albuquerque and chair of the Senate Rules Committee. We're also talking to Mario Jimenez, executive director of Common Cause New Mexico. And Mario, I wanted to talk about another bill uh, your organization is supporting, which would uh, open up New Mexico's primaries more to independents. We already have what I think you've called semi-open primaries. Correct me if I'm wrong, but independent voters can go to the polls and vote in a primary, but they've got to register with a party first. How would House Bill 54 change our primary elections? Yeah, it's going to change the elections in in many, many different ways. And ultimately what it's going to do, it's going to change the elections for the voters. And, And so the big part of it is you do not have to. Now, there's several different pieces of, of legislation that deal with open primaries, but we had one that just passed out of committee the other day. And that one specifically, all it simply does is it keeps the status quo with one exception. Upon uh, entering the polling location, you don't have to choose a party and register as that party to get that ballot. And you can simply say you would like the ballot from, you know, the black party or from the blue party, and then that's the ballot you get, and you simply vote, and you keep your party status as unaffiliated. And this is important because there's a lot of different sections of our election code um, that will affect you if you do change your party. For example, you mentioned poll workers earlier. You know, our county clerks have to maintain uh, uh, nonpartisanship and bipartisanship at our polling locations. And by making those changes, it may throw you off to where you may not be qualified to do so. Uh, Same goes for an individual who may want to be appointed to or participate in, say, our our citizens' uh, redistricting committee. Uh, If you'd like to participate in in participating in that process as a member of the redistricting committee, it could take you out of of contention of being on that committee, amongst other uh, uh, laws as well that would affect you. But ultimately, what we're looking at doing with open primaries is ensuring that all New Mexicans have a say in who represents them. Currently in New Mexico, we have quite a few races that are determined in the primary election. The primary election where we have an overwhelming amount of individuals who are unaffiliated aren't voting because they do not want to change parties. Yes, we did open it up. We have a semi-open primary. But again, there are people who are mindful of wanting to participate in in. In, in local government and participate in the democratic part process through, through poll workers. And so we need to ensure that we can keep this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, group of individuals um, at independent or declined state so they can continue to participate in doing so. You know, we've seen across the country a decline in individuals who want to participate as a poll worker. Um, first, it was, you know, really leaning towards COVID. And then it became, you know, fearful. You know, we saw across the country poll workers being threatened for simply doing their duty of ensuring that individuals who show up to vote are afforded that right. And they don't feel safe at the polling locations, at the, at the polls anymore. So we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to ensure that all New Mexicans have a say in the process. If I'm not voting in the primary election and it's determined who's going to be representing me because that individual does not have a general election opponent, I did not have an opportunity to cast a vote in an election that my taxpayer dollars are paying for and have a say in who represents me. And I think that's just wrong. And we need to make sure that all New Mexicans are afforded the right to participate in selecting who's going to represent them. And that includes extending open, extending the primary election to everyone by opening the primaries up. I can imagine, I know there are some Democrats and Republicans out there who think, you know, hey, these are primaries. They are meant to pick the nominees for their parties. Why should independents get a say in who the Democrats, for example, nominate for a particular office? Well, again, ultimately, what we're really looking at doing is they're not nominating somebody for the process if there's not an individual running in the general election. They are they are very literally electing somebody in the primary election because that candidate now only has to show up and vote for themselves and they're elected. They need to receive a single vote in the general election. And, and so my answer to that is you should not be having New Mexicans feel left out of a process that their taxpayer dollars are paying for. Again, they need to have a say. They should have a say in who's going to represent them. Um, so I, I think that, that, that reasoning behind it is, is nothing more than a farce. 
You know, we need to make sure that New Mexicans, all New Mexicans who are eligible to vote are afforded the right to make a choice. I know this is not a new debate at the legislature. Do you think there's more of an appetite this year in, in opening up the state's primaries? You know, I think there is, and, and I think that's why we have seen multiple pieces of legislation uh, introduced that, that addresses this issue. So I, I was I was very happy to see that, you know, we're seeing legislation introduced from both sides of the aisle. That means that we are moving forward in the right direction of, of thinking about New Mexicans rather than thinking about the political parties, because ultimately that's what this is all about. It's, it's about ensuring that New Mexicans are, are participating in the process. We're not here to protect the parties. We're here to protect the people. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. I think the appetite is right for it right now. Uh, we may have some improvements, um, but I think even after the session, we're going to have to continue uh, to bring back the specific issues to continue to make improvements uh, to ensure that we are encompassing and including uh, every, everyone uh, from the state. This is Let's Talk New Mexico, and we've been talking to Mario Jimenez, Executive Director of Common Cause New Mexico, and Senator Katie Duhigg, Democrat from Albuquerque. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're joined now by the county clerk from Doña Ana County, Dr. Amanda Lopez-Askin. And, Doctor, we asked you on because lawmakers are not only talking about how to change the voting process, but also how to better protect the people who run our elections, poll workers and local election officials like yourself. Uh, I'm curious, I mean, did you hear uh, threats uh, against poll workers or other election officials in in Doña Ana County uh, last November? So, hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So, uh, specific threats, um, we we always make sure to work with our local law enforcement and or security, even within our building when when something like that happens. I would say there was nothing super specific, but an overall um, hostility at some of our sites. uh, That was dealt with pretty quickly. I was actually pleased at the end of the election for us to be able to say, I, I can't say there was anything that was way out of the ordinary, although I think most people felt kind of a heightened uh, tension. And part of that is because we have actually in Doniana County had some um, aggressive folks that have um, chosen to express their displeasure with us in obviously inappropriate ways, uh, but also kind of the national stage, right? Kind of that uh, narrative that continues, um, even though we fight it as, as much as we can, but the narrative about something is amiss with elections. So, um, you know, I'm frankly used to it. it it's sad that, that I have to have personally um, am used to the vitriol, whether it's online um, or in person. Um, but really, my heightened concern is always for our election officials, because every single clerk in the, in the state cannot run our elections without our community helping and supporting us. Yeah, there's a bill, Senate Bill 43, that would make it a fourth degree felony to intimidate an election worker. What's the importance of, of a bill like this to election officials? Well, I actually spoke in favor of this bill in its first hearing last week, and I would say one of the reasons I think it's important is I think a collective support, show of support from legislators towards election officials is vital. But I also think we need to um, heighten the, um, you know, kind of wrap around our election officials and make sure that they know that they're important, um, that we prioritize them and that their safety above all else is, um, you know, absolutely something that we are going to speak up about at every opportunity. Now, this all comes as authorities have arrested a former Republican legislative candidate, Solomon Pena, and say he masterminded a a series of shootings at the homes of elected officials here in Albuquerque. Um, What did you think about when you heard about the shootings here in Albuquerque uh, and and the sort of the impact that had on the political climate here? Sure. So I was um, as shocked and appalled as I think the average person should be. But beyond that, I was particularly uh, sympathetic and my heart went out to Senator Linda Lopez. I have a six-year-old child and I know her uh, 10-year-old daughter was, um, you know, there was very very specific things that she experienced that were very distressing. And we can't help but personalize those things. And frankly, we should. Um, Every person, regardless of their perspective, regardless of partisan politics, should be appalled and do everything they can to speak out against violence at any opportunity of elected officials. Um, We don't sign up for that. We know we get criticized. We know that there's things that people are not going to be happy with us about. 
And we, we know that going in, but to uh, expect um, safety is not too much to ask. And um, I was appalled. And, and I think um, you referenced this, I think, via email. But last year, there was a, I call it extremist site, uh, had posted a, an erroneous story about Doniana County. And sadly, that's not unusual. And um, uh, what was supposed to be, uh, oh, I believe was Mr. Pena, um, commented on the story and something along the lines of hang her until she's dead. And of course, this is referring to Doniana County and referring it to myself. So I noted it. It seemed to kind of rise to the level of very of specificity, right? So I did send those screenshots to the FBI. Um, the post or the, the uh, comment was removed um, shortly thereafter. So I know that I remembered his name. I did some research and I discovered that he was a candidate, which was... Um, incredibly disappointing. So to find out that the allegations include following through on violence and being that angry and upset that they would want to harm someone and their family um, is outrageous. And we should continue to talk about it in terms of it being outrageous and out of bounds. So if I'm, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, you uh, reported uh, uh, comments by Solomon Pena to the FBI last year. Is that right? Correct. It was, I believe it was um, in late summer, um, you know, so it was, you know, online is very difficult. I don't know if our laws have caught up to, you know, our electronic world of threats, but I saw his name um, on this post. He was a frequent commenter on a particular post. I went and did my research. I figured out it was him. I sent the screenshots to the FBI and, um, you know, that was kind of it. And that's not the first time I've done that. Um, specific to him it was, but there have been other incidents or voicemails, et cetera, that I've forwarded um, that I thought reached the level of outrageous and concerning. Did you ever hear anything back from the FBI or, or from other authorities uh, after you reported those comments? I did not. I did not. And, and I'm curious, I mean, how is this political climate, these threats, this rhetoric and these very real acts of violence uh, taking a toll on election officials like yourself and affecting the ability of you know, people up and down this process, poll workers to county clerks, affecting their ability to run elections? It absolutely is affecting us. I know that you talked about COVID, that being a, a huge factor in 2020. And many people, especially over the age or had somebody vulnerable in their home, did bow out. And we did a massive recruitment. We're able to recruit folks. Um, but when we're doing our trainings and we have to talk about threats and we have to talk about um, make people aware and, you know, um, in an emergency situation, what are you going to do? I can see their eyes um, just kind of narrow and think, why? Um, and then we know why. So we talk about it pretty openly and we have to acknowledge it. And then at that point, we have lost folks that said, I just didn't sign up for this. I want to help. I believe in the process. I want to be the eyes and ears um, of elections uh, day of or even during early voting. But I just don't want to put myself at risk with uh, And if nothing else, hostility and aggression. Right. So um, that is something that is very concerning that uh, I think clerks across the state are dealing with. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Andrew Oxford, and we're talking with Doña Ana County Clerk Amanda Lopez-Askin about the, about the threats facing election workers. Uh, and we want to hear from you. Are you a poll worker? Tell us about your experience. Email us at letstalk at KUNM.org. Tweet to hashtag Let's Talk NM or call us 505-277-5866. That's 505-277-5866. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we go behind the meaning and the making of a polarizing Puerto Rican classic, a salsa song with a dramatic topical ending right at the height of the AIDS crisis. I can love a song musically. It's just I hate what the song does. Not even what it says, it's what it does. That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. Support for KUNM provided by PNM, assisting limited income customers with past due electric bills through the Good Neighbor Fund. Also offering additional plans for extra time and other payment options. Details at pnm.com slash billhelp. KUNM would like to thank all of the supporting members in New Mexico, from Socorro to Taos and everywhere in between, for making this program possible. Your contributions keep essential news, information, and music programming available for all. KUNM, powered by you. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're talking with Doña Ana County Cork Amanda Lopez-Askin. And I wanted to ask, there's a proposal this year to let counties increase pay for election workers. The amount that counties can pay is set in state law, uh, if I understand correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I'm curious, how would that impact offices like yours when recruiting folks to help run elections? Well, I think anything, any incentive that we can provide our public to serve with us is great, and I'm in full support of that. I will say that it is set by statute, and they're very long days. Um, some folks, just depending on how late and how far there are, they are in our county, can um, work uh, a 16-hour day. And so the the we always talk about them being volunteers. Well, they are paid, but they should be paid well. They should be paid for the service that they do. When I talk about, when I when I give my pleas to the public to please come work, um, you know, elections, I, I'm not, it's not a soundbite. I genuinely want folks to understand the process. I genuinely want them to be on the front line because that's what they are. But I also want them to be fairly paid. And so the amount of stress that they deal with, the details that they um, do, the training that they go through, as well as dealing with the public, they should be compensated for that well. And I fully support um, increased pay for our election official poll workers. I realize it's not a, a year-round job working the polls. Uh, how much does it does it pay to be a poll worker in, in say, Doña Ana County, where you are? Well, again, it's a standard rate for the election day. Election day is uh, $250 plus. There's some incentives if you're, you know, running back uh, results or, um, you know, if you're a um, presiding judge, which is basically the supervisor of the site, um, but also early voting folks, right? So people who um, start 30 days before the election or 28 days specifically before the election, and those they actually become temporary employees of the county. And at that point, we're able to give them an hourly wage, and that is not set in statute. So we're really focused on Election Day, because that is when we deploy the most folks. That is when we deploy, when all of our election sites are open, and that is the most needed um, day for sure. Yeah. I know a lot of states have struggled with increased turnover among, whether it's sort of county clerks, county recorders, or just poll workers at that ground level, right? Helping people uh, sign in to vote and cast their ballots. Uh, Do you worry about an increase in turnover in those jobs here in New Mexico? Or do you see that right now? Absolutely. As you know, we have had some high profile clerks that have come under attack um, by by individuals who are denying um, our election integrity. And these many of them are, are clerks that have never had any pushback in their communities. So not only are they dumbfounded by the claims, but they're also very discouraged. I you know, know at least one, potentially two clerks that are saying, I'm, I'm, when I'm, my term is up, I'm not going to do this again. This is, it's too much. I didn't sign up for this. It's one thing to be high profile and it's one thing to be criticized. It's a whole other level when folks are, um, you know, those individuals are making uh, specific threats. Hang her, hang her till she's dead is, is something that you don't necessarily sign up for. Um, although I, I also know clerks like myself who are doubling down for saying your um, erroneous information feeds my desire to support and promote elections in New Mexico and all of the layers and checks and balances that we have in place. I think our public needs, uh, New Mexico is very fortunate. Um, We are one of the top administrators of elections in the country, and we need to talk more about that and all of the, again, all of those layers of accountability that, that are built in per statute. Dr. Amanda Lopez-Askin is the Doña Ana County Clerk. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Thank you. From KUNM, this is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Andrew Oxford. And this week, we're talking about how the legislature could change how we vote and who can vote. It seems every year there are debates about opening up the primary process or making it easier for independents to run for office. Now, New Mexicans could get a chance to decide for themselves to make a big change to the state's election system. A proposed constitutional amendment would scrap the state's system of partisan primary elections and instead put all primary candidates on the same ballot with the top five vote getters advancing to the general election. Voters would then rank their choices in the general election. And while Santa Fe and Las Cruces use 
use ranked choice voting for nonpartisan city elections, this proposal, Senate Joint Resolution 7, would take ranked choice voting statewide. Rachel Hutchinson is a research analyst at FairVote, a group that promotes ranked choice voting around the country. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. I got to say, this would be a big change to how New Mexico runs its elections. I'm curious, are there other states that hold elections this way? Hi, yes, good morning, um, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's nice to talk about ranked choice voting. Uh, so, yes, Alaska is another system that uses this system. Again, it's a nonpartisan primary in which all voters can participate. Uh, voters pick their one favorite candidate, and the five candidates with the most votes advance to a general election where ranked choice voting is used to elect a winner. Um, the ranked choice aspect, which my organization, Fair Vote, is mostly focused on, um, elects winners who have a broad mandate and support rather than those who achieve a narrow win by appealing to a small base. Um, it incentivizes candidates to reach out to new voters. Um, it makes things easier on the voter by allowing us to express how we honestly feel about multiple candidates instead of one. Um, it encourages new and diverse candidates to run and has led to increased representation of women in colors and candidates of color. Um, so this particular flavor of ranked choice voting is used in Alaska. They just used it for the first time um, last fall. Um, and this combination of nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting really matches Alaska's unique political culture and their freedom from the traditional binary. Um, 58% of voters there are independents. Um, they've elected uh, two independent or third-party governors in the past 30 years. Um, they've also notably elected a write-in candidate, Lisa Murkowski, to U.S. Senate before. Um, and when it was used in November, it elected a diverse slate of candidates that really speak to Alaska's streak of independent politics, um, a conservative Republican governor, a moderate Republican senator, um, and a moderate Democratic congresswoman all in the same election. Um, and candidates on both sides of the aisle really tried to talk about getting second and third choice support um, from other sort of candidate spaces. Uh, Alaska voters clearly understood ranked choice voting. 99.8% of them cast uh, valid votes. Um, and the vast majority, about 80% of people, uh, really used the opportunity to rank multiple candidates in Senate and House races. Um, geographically, Alaska is the largest rural state. Um, and if they can run in a ranked choice voting race, where can't we? Uh, the polls ran really smoothly. Tabulation for each race took a minute or two once they ran it through the system. So uh, it's certainly a good conversation for New Mexico to have going forward um, if a similar system is the right fit. It, this sounds like a real change to what we think of as partisan politics. You know, I got to wonder if, if minority parties are generally opposed to this kind of change. Sure. So uh, minority parties, I think ranked choice voting actually sort of puts them back in the driver's seat, especially their voters um, who in the past have felt like maybe they'd be wasting or spoiling their vote on a third party or independent candidate by capturing votes from, you know, the closest Democrat or Republican. So it empowers them to really vote for their favorite candidate. And, you know, if that candidate doesn't fare well, their next choice can then go to their next favorite and they feel like they haven't wasted their vote so much. Um, also, it's good for the candidates. If a third party or independent candidate runs under this type of system, um, you know, even if they end up not winning or being a front runner, uh, the front runners in the race really have to address the issue salience um, of those non front running candidates and reach out to their voters and maybe make policy concessions and sort of electoral and legislative coalitions in order to really get second and third choice votes. And that behavior um, extends through to the legislature. Um, in Alaska, we see uh, the state legislature there making bipartisan coalitions uh, within and working together in that way. So uh, I think it really definitely is empowering to our independent third party voters and candidates. I remember when Santa Fe voters elected to use ranked choice voting, it was several years before the city actually used the system. I remember city officials said they had to upgrade software. What kind of retooling of election systems does it take for entire states to, to use ranked choice voting these days? Sure. Uh, so all modern equipment can handle a ranked choice voting election. Um, this is a significant improvement from the 2000s uh, when Santa Fe first voted to adopt ranked choice voting. Uh, we see this with states like Maine and Alaska, jurisdictions from New York City to Salt Lake City to Las Cruces, uh, using ranked choice voting pretty quickly after they've decided to adopt it. I know Las Cruces uh, made that change in just under a year. Um, any RCV election can be tabulated instantly. 
Um, places like Utah, Minneapolis, uh, San Francisco, you see ranked choice voting results the night of or the day after. Um, ranked choice voting elections are run just as securely. They do not change the way ballots are collected. In fact, the results are even more transparent because we get a lot of information on what voters want and what their specific preferences are. Uh, and now that we have so many places using it, many of which have been doing it for a while, there are resources and guidance out there uh, that administrators can refer to. It's not a new thing, right? I, I, I think I've sat in some committee hearings at the legislature where some lawmakers have opposed ranked choice voting or when they've talked about it, sort of on a philosophical level. They argue it runs against this idea of you know one person, one vote, because you're ranking candidate, you know, several candidates. What do you say to that argument? Yeah, I would say your vote only counts towards one candidate at a time. Your, the full power of your vote will always count towards your number one, your first choice vote. Um, unless, you know, that candidate becomes viable at that which point the full power of your one vote goes uh, towards your next favorite. Um, ranked choice voting has stood against every constitutional federal challenge in court, um, notably in Maine and Alaska. So it's definitely uh, proven true against this one person, one vote um, uh, requirement. You know, I... Uh, uh remember Santa Fe's first city election with ranked choice voting. And I think some voters found this overly complicated, uh, confusing. Some told me that they liked how ranked choice voting got them to think about all of the candidates, right? Not just pick one. Does ranked choice voting impact, I think you talked a little bit about this, but I mean, it can impact who's represented in our government, potentially lowering some of the barriers to candidates who might get get overlooked or, or edged out. Do we see that happening in some of the states or cities that are using this system? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, you talked about the example of Santa Fe, and I'll start by saying that in 2018, uh, when first, they first adopted it there, uh, 94% said they were satisfied with it, and 71% said they wanted to keep using it. Um, people said that candidates were seen by voters to effectively conduct their campaigns with the new system. More than 76% of voters had a candidate or campaign asked to be their second or third choice. Um, and nearly 7 in 10 voters said the campaigns were more positive. So uh, you definitely see candidates both front-running and sort of lower polling, uh, really asking candidates, can I not only be your first choice, but can I be your second and third, uh, and working to find areas of common ground. And it's definitely uh, led to some more positive campaigning um, and some lower polling candidates um, having more of an influence on the outcome of the race. Yeah, I was going to say, how does this impact sort of the tenor of races and the way that candidates go about uh, trying to persuade folks to vote for them? Do they, do they have to take kind of a different tack when they still have a shot at being a second or third choice for somebody? Yeah, definitely. Uh, ranked choice voting, unlike our current system, which is sort of zero sum, you know, a vote for one candidate is essentially a vote for another. Um, as the rounds go on in a ranked choice voting election, somebody that initially voted for your opponent, their vote might come to you later. So um, as a candidate, it's really in your best interest to, you know, be civil, stick to the issues, um, find common ground with other candidates and other voters. Um, and we've definitely seen some evidence of where ranked choice voting has been implemented elsewhere of that. Um, it is the fastest growing nonpartisan reform in the nation. It reaches um, about over 16 million voters in over 60 cities, counties, and states. So um, in some of those jurisdictions, we've certainly seen campaigns um, be more positive, even candidates uh, campaigning together sometimes. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM, and we're talking about ranked choice voting. One uh, change to the state's election system that voters could get to decide on if legislators decide to put it up to a vote. Uh, and we want to hear from you. Have you used a ranked choice ballot before? Maybe you live in Santa Fe and, and you've done this in city elections. Maybe you've got real questions about it. Maybe you're still trying to figure it out, too. Let us know what you think. 505-277-5866. That's 505 or email us, letstalk at KUNM.org. We're talking to Rachel Hutchinson, a research analyst at FairVote, which promotes ranked choice voting around the country. And I was curious, too, about how does ranked choice voting change the influence of money in, in politics, particularly at a statewide level, like we've seen in, in places like Alaska, uh, where we've had these sort of high-profile partisan offices, not just city offices, but uh, you know, offices for governor and, and such, on the ballot uh, in, in a ranked choice election. How does this influence how campaigns raise money, spend money? Yeah, uh, so I would say basically what ranked choice voting does is I think it makes votes more powerful than money uh, because now every voter's vote has the potential to really make an impact uh, on the final elect count in the race. 
Um, so, you know, people are more focused on reaching out to more voters um, rather than they are in just sort of spending money on degrading uh opponents and that sort of thing. Um, also, just on the money front, um, one thing that we'd like to see in Las Cruces um, is that often when ranked choice voting is uh, used to consolidate a runoff election into just one instant runoff election, it tends to save money and a drop in turnout. Um, Las Cruces was said to have saved between eighty dollars and $100,000 um, by eliminating the need for runoff elections. So um, it's both a money win in the sense that, you know, votes become suddenly more powerful than campaign finance, and also it saves the state some money as well. I wanted to ask, too, about how does ranked choice voting affect uh how does it affect turnout ultimately among voters? I mean, again, there's sort of a learning curve uh, to changing a system like this. I think we we know how our primary elections work. Uh, we 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 know how to participate in those. Does this risk dampening turnout when it's implemented? If folks uh, have to kind of learn a whole new system, a whole new way of voting. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, intuitively, ranked choice voting allows more votes to count in a way that meaningfully impacts the results of the election, uh, which should make participating sound more appealing than under um, the typical system where votes can sort of feel wasted or spoiled if you're not voting for a front runner. Um, it also may encourage more candidates to run, which could give voters more choice and therefore more reason to turn out. Um, in practice, it's still the question being studied. Some research finds that it increases turnout, while other research suggests it has little or no effect. Um, other factors like the competitiveness, competitiveness of the race or if it's an even number year probably matter more. Um, however, when we look at places that have used it, for example, in 2021, uh, when New York City used it for its city elections, they had the highest turnout they've had since uh, the 1980s. Um, San Francisco also had a record turnout in, or sorry, Santa Fe had a record turnout in um, its mayoral election when it first used it in 2018. So there are definitely some initial evidence that um, it could help increase turnout and get voters to the ballot box. Are there other ways of doing ranked choice voting at a statewide level in these sorts of partisan races? We're talking about uh, uh, one particular system here where you've got uh, all the candidates on one primary ballot and then the top vote getters advance. Are there other ways of doing this? Yeah, so ranked choice voting comes in many different flavors. Um, in cities, for example, uh, like in Santa Fe and Las Cruces, it can often replace two-round runoff elections, which saves time and money. Um, in primaries, it solves vote splitting between many candidates and makes sure that the nominee truly represents and is mandated to the party. Uh, for example, the Virginia GOP used uh, ranked choice voting in their 2021 gubernatorial primary to nominate Glenn Youngkin, who went on to win an extremely competitive general election. Um, and then in general elections, it serves to solve uh, the so-called spoiler effect, which means that third-party independent candidates can run and bring attention to their issue salience uh, without capturing votes from another candidate. This is sort of the main model. So they use um, primaries in their, they use ranked choice voting for uh, federal and state elections, both in primaries and in general elections. So they keep the structure of having separate party primaries. They use ranked choice within those. Um, and then they use it uh, in the general election to select a winner as well. And in general elections, it's certainly uh, shown to invite more competition, um, get sort of third party independent candidates running as well, and make sure that the front runners um, are reaching out to more voters in these instances. And we were talking about the, the state of Maine there. So we've talked about Alaska system, Maine systems. Are there other states right now that are considering moving to ranked choice voting? Yes. Uh, so Nevada, actually, uh, voters just voted um, on a very similar uh, amendment uh, that is this final five nonpartisan primary ranked choice uh, general system. Um, and they voted yes on it in November. Uh, they have to vote on it again in two years before it becomes a constitutional amendment. But they're looking at a very similar uh, bill. Interesting. Well, thank you. We, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, and I want to thank everyone who called in or, or tweeted to us. And a big thank you to our guests, uh, Rachel Hutchinson from Fair Vote. I appreciate you joining us. State Senator Katie Duhigg, Mario Jimenez from Common Cause, and Doña Ana County Clerk Amanda Lopez-Askin. This week's show was part of America Amplified, an initiative funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to support community engagement journalism and public media. For more on this year's legislative session, stay tuned to KUNM News. 
You can follow us on Twitter at KUNM News or find us on Facebook. Just search for KUNM Radio. If you missed part of the show, we'll have audio up on our website soon. You can also subscribe to the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our engineer is Marino Spencer. Jeanette DiDios handled the phones today. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted for us. And Kaveh Movahead produced the show. I'm Andrew Oxford for Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.